right, this is going to be a summation of episodes 1 through 20 to allow people to kind of catch up or remember what happened. And we're going to read off a summation and then we're going to do some Q&A. We have taken listener questions mostly off of Facebook and we're going to read those plus a couple more that I think help round out the summation. Excuse the fact that the first few paragraphs are going to be scripted. The reason that we did that is there's a lot to cover. So we're going to do a quick summary with all of us going around the table. Yeah, one thing that definitely surprised me writing this summary is how much happened. Because we we only put out probably a little less than 20 hours of content, and it's a lot of things. Yep. I would like to point out, because one thing we were worried about were certain details that got left off of this summary that sort of get folded into the big, broad picture. So there's a lot that people would need to go back and listen to for some finer points mm-hmm. but you know we we tried to keep this succinct 80 years ago the queen of fairy cursed the kingdom of fenrir in a tantrum of displeasure and surrounded the entire land with magical thorns that turned people into beasts in their isolation the people have become like trapped animals corralled by lord mentor the acting regent of the realm sable mirkwood siltha lunari and jalen evans Three teenagers who became friends in finishing school have made an oath to change the depraved status quo in this kingdom and are now entering adulthood as free agents in the world of intrigue. Two of the biggest marriage contracts for a generation are being negotiated and so the dominoes are starting to fall, but it seems not all players in this game are human. The Fairy Queen is not content to merely act as Fenrir's jailer. The wildly unpopular Lady Nieve, known for her practice of magic and large flocks of sheep, hires our heroes to fetch and decode a journal authored by one of the last witnesses to the kingdom's destruction, Sir Guire, squire to the King of Fenrir. The kingdom's gossip network turns dangerous as thugs attempt to interfere. While visiting House Mason, the downtrodden lords of the ancient Stonemason's Guild, our heroes discover a wicked secret. House Mason historically used blood magic and necromancy to maintain their hold on power. They recently regained some of their use of dark magics, which seems to have set the Fairy Queen and her mortal agents against House Mason. Silpha, our mage, even learns some of this forbidden dark art. The discovery puts our heroes in a tough spot, as the Masons will certainly kill to maintain secrecy. The Masons instead adopt a more devious strategy, complicity. They attempt to lure Silpha into a marriage with Byron Mason. Shortly after uncovering the Mason's secret, our heroes discover a lizard creature stumbling from the thorns. Realizing quickly that this is Lady Miev's half-brother Riley, they take him home. Lady Miev turns to Matron Varathi, the druidic head of House Varathi, to break the thorns-inflicted curse on her brother, and Lady Varathi makes some quick and very dangerous decisions. First... She leaves her ward Sable in charge of the Druid Circle. Then she travels to House Miev to cure Riley in return for Miev's loyalty to the Circle and House Varathi. But in breaking the curse on Riley, Lady Varathi also breaks her pacts with the Fairy Queen. The Queen retaliates swiftly and destroys Lady Varathi, leaving a power vacuum. The heroes discover that Sable, the adopted ward of Lady Varathi, has been targeted for assassination, though it takes some time for them to learn why. It turns out Sable is actually the first daughter of the first daughter of Lady Varathi, and therefore the house's rightful heir. Using magic, wits, and friendships, Sable proves to Lord Mentor that she is ready to take her grandmother's place, and he names her the new head of the house, Baroness Sable Valeria Varathi, a title Sable feels ill-prepared to live up to. 
The Thieves' Guild, supposedly owned and operated by House Evans, turns out to be the hub of the kingdom's primary assassins, whose inner circle of murderers are actually were-rats aligned with the Fairy Queen. The assassins in the Rat Pack find that they cannot attack Sable, as her druid affiliation and relationship with her grandmother protect her as a mutual ally to the fairies. Jalen, adopted daughter of House Evans, intervenes to save her friend, and the situation rapidly escalates, until mutiny in the Thieves' Guild and assaults on Jalen's friends force a confrontation. Jalen gathers up her friends and family, turns the table on the head of the Thieves' Guild, and murders him in his room in the sewers, thus ending the assassination plot against Sable and tenuously restoring order to the Guild under the control of Kylan, Jalen's uncle and mentor. Meanwhile, Lady Miev's plan to enter the Thorns in search of something she hasn't shared isn't going well. She sends our heroes to break into the Regent's Vault to acquire the sketchbook of their late mentor, assassinated years before. The book contains magical designs for machines to cut through the thorns and free the kingdom. This event seems to have put our heroes into direct opposition with House Mentor, but thus far they remain undetected in their activities. After finding the book, our heroes are given the task to hunt down six ingredients to form a kind of magic golem. A heart of fire, ice, life, steel, stone, and power. It's time to go hunting. But this is just the outline of events. Silpa has multiple rival suitors and a personal battle with the seductive power of blood magic. Jalen and a young paladin have fallen in love, or at least lust, and she's wrestling with having to keep him in the dark about her other life with the guild. Sables attempts to navigate her family's labyrinthine network of fairy agreements, and the politics of a baroness are proving difficult. The web of fairy agreements is starting to unravel across the kingdom. Noble houses continue to contend in the shadows, over the marriage contracts, drawing lines and alliances behind closed doors. This kettle is coming to a boil. We sound like a soap opera. Okay, so that ends the scripted part of our discussion. We're absolutely thrilled that people actually put questions up. That means you're listening to us and you like us. Yay! 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 Please tell everybody, and <laughs> hopefully we'll get even more listeners. Uh, let's let's just start with some listener questions. Is that okay with everybody? Yep, yep, let's do it. All right, so from Malcolm on Facebook. Malcolm asks, and I'll give this to you, Nate, can you give a recap of each house and what they're known for? Yeah, I can. Actually, I will say I created the houses, and I wrote roughly what they were known for, but a lot of the definition came out after players made choices and set the tone for how they were going to interact with the houses. So there's House Mentor, which is the regent. They control the actual city of Fenrir. There's the Porninos, which are the horse lord. Uh, the Porninos are also, it turns out, we've discovered fairy knights that have taken up defending the kingdom from fairy creatures. The Druries are the miserly wheat lords. They control the food supply and the barley and the grain. And so they are probably wildly wealthy. They're also known for having just boatloads of children. Just boatloads. And an antithope in general to magic. Yes. House Miev is on the outs. It only has one person really left standing at this point which is lady miev they are known for sheep and wool and lady miev is also a wizard there's also the frikers who have a, a basically a wine vineyard and they create almost all of the real alcohol for the kingdom and meg loves them yes it's also rumored that they are really bad at business in general and are probably very poor 
But there's House Varathi, which is Sable's house. They are known as powerful druids, but they're also the lumber and carpentry group. Meaning I can carve. Yes, they have a really sustainable tree grove system that they use to generate wood, and then half of the family is in carpentry and half is in lumber. Sable was from the carpentry portion. Sable built our treehouse. So House Mason is the Stone Masons. They were the most powerful family for a thousand years. They built all of the major buildings across the kingdom, and they're known for their riddles and labyrinths and traps, and also, apparently, their blood magic. They're specifically not known for that, but it's their dark secret. House Evans is actually the uh, the fur trade. F-U-R, not F-I-R. Uh, so they, they have hunters, for the most part, but their real business is that they own the Thieves' Guild and operate the seedy underbelly of the entire network around Fenrir. So you handle the overbelly and the underbelly. I think what I wrote there was fur trade by day, thieves killed by night. And then there's House Lunari, which is not a noble family, but very important to this campaign because Silpa's from there. And they are the Nouveau Riche, a wealthy merchant family that could be nobility someday. Okay, uh, I'm going to put a question out for a character. Tell me one thing about your character's development in this story that has surprised you. I think when I developed the concept of Silpha, she was a lot more backstabby ambitious versus idealistic ambitious. So things that that surprised me were her unwillingness to generally throw other people under the carriage, so to speak, and the great ties of loyalty that she develops to the people that are close to her. I think what has surprised me about Jalen was something I deliberately set out, but sort of the the rolling implications of it, because I I decided, you know, she was adopted into this family and given this role that she was eventually going to take over the guild. But sort of the twist on it was that she she was raised with a with a lot of love and nurturing and family values. Yeah, I think that surprised all of us. Yeah, and 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 I did that on purpose because I wanted I wanted it to be sort of a layered situation for her. But I have been surprised at how her relationships with the members of her family have developed. The way she and Lord Evans interact and the way she and Jessica interact and then Kylan. And it, it's just the situation of her upbringing has, has made her relationships just really fascinating. And I've been surprised at how fascinating they are. For me, playing Sable, as isolated as she'd be because of her mutation and being a ward of her house and not actually a member of it, I expected her to be, I think, colder than she is and a little more calculating, like the matron. And it turns out that she is actually very naive. There's a lot of things that I even see as a player sometimes that I know that she is not picking up on. So I was I was just pretty surprised at, at that fact. Also for our players, this one's actually from Lindsay on Facebook. How much about the mystery of the thorns did you know when this started? And do you have any pet theories about where this is going? I'll start. This is Sandra. I didn't know a lot about the mystery of the thorn. I had the basic background of it, that there was a thousand years of prosperity, and then something happened that broke some kind of oath, and the thorns came about, and they've been there for our whole lives, plus a few of our generations before us lives there. That supposedly they were there because of the Fairy Queen, but that is all that, that I had. As far as pet theories on where it will lead, 
I think simply because of the sheer isolation of it, I think we will eventually look to take those things down. Plus, some of our backstory was written with a desire to break free from the molds that we are being placed in. But I have a I have a worry that it will create tension between the three uh, characters in a way that I you know it's going to be a little heart painful to play. I have lots of theories. You don't get to do theories. <laughs> this is for the players, Nate. <laughs> I came into this game with slightly more knowledge of some of the lore of Fenrir because I played in a previous campaign that Nate ran uh, featuring this world. And I think I talked a little bit about the differences and how I planned my character development for this campaign versus the previous campaign based on that experience in like our episode zero. But for me, this campaign is so much different because of those choices i don't really have any pet theories about where it will go and i try really hard to separate some of the extra knowledge that i gained from that other campaign away from what i actually know in character i had the same information that sandra did we're both new to playing in this world i think my approach to the thorns it has been a little bit circumspect. I mean, it's been 80 years, which is four generations, which means the thorns being in place has become systemically cultural to this kingdom. I mean, it, it has had a profound cultural effect that we have never mm -hmm. known anything else, mm -hmm. right? There are characters have never known a world without these thorns. And so it's just, it's the way it is, which is interesting to me out of character, just thinking mm -hmm. about the implications of that, uh, but trying to get in character where it's just like, yeah, they're there. You don't go out at night. You know? <laughs> uh, we find stuff in the mornings from things coming out of them. But also, you know, the animal mutation, that everybody has this shared reality of an animal mutation and what that does to us culturally. And I think the, the implications that I'm seeing is we're going to get out of them probably within our lifetime because there's different attempts you know because we're the PCs. Well, I mean, Lady Miev is actively trying to do it and we're trying to help her. The Thieves Guild is tunneling. Mm. so they're trying to get out somebody's gonna figure out how to get out and i'm wondering like what our little isolated cultural island is is gonna hit once we get out of the thorns and then the other possibility is if we don't get out of the thorns the nobility is facing an inbreeding crisis <laughs> that um, is gonna start to rear its head within a few generations yeah, didn't your brother help you figure yeah, that yeah. out? Dave, my brother David, who is a listener, uh, helped me figure out the math on this, that, you know, Fenrir has a pretty constant population of 3,000 people, which is technically enough, right, for, to, to keep the inbreeding from becoming an issue. But we have the class structure, and the nobility, for the most part, doesn't marry down. So they have four to six generations before this actually starts to really become a problem where everybody is going to be first cousins or closer. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Again, that cultural implication. The, the fairy queen is dooming us to this slow decay due to imbecility caused by inbreeding, and that's going to be the ruling class, you know. <laughs> so We've seen where that goes. Yeah, we've seen where that goes. So, I mean, that, I just, like, I am really fascinated with that, but I don't think that's going to, that's a projection that, you know, we're really going to hit in this game. It's something that doesn't come up in game a lot that I think is really interesting is that, you know, I'm playing a druid, and the only nature that I know is a nature choked by thorns. So it'll be interesting if we do get out of the thorns, what my relationship to nature is going oh, to be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Totally. You know. I have a question for you, Nate. Uh, this one comes from Adar. 
and I apologize if I say your name wrong. Please let us know how it's pronounced. What was your biggest huh? Didn't see that coming moment. So I have a few. So one of the things that I do philosophically, I've I've been DMing for 21, 22 years now. And so I don't do as much planning as a lot of other DMs might do. I have ideas of what might happen. I create situations and then we just we just go through it. And a lot of what I do is improv. Like a lot of my best NPCs, I had no idea they were going to exist at the beginning of the session and they did at the end. I have a lot of these moments, right? There's a lot of like, oh, okay, I guess that's what we're doing now. The one thing that has shocked me the most in this campaign was probably the agreement with Ophelia. And the reason that shocked me the most is because there was a fair amount of foreshadowing. The clues were there yeah. that this was not a good move. And we did it. And I think it was a good, it was an interesting character choice, but it, it was not one I, I saw coming. Like I'm used to a little bit of a little bit of meta from players to be like, oh, that's a that's a bad idea. I'm not going to do it. And then this one, we, we went there. A particular That was one that I think I talked to everybody about how it left me feeling really icky about my character. Because, yeah, because it, it was, was very it, calculated. It was, calculated. It it was, was incredibly yeah. calculated on her part. She needed to know what it looked like to make a deal, and she needed to know what it looked like when it was a bad one. And and she and she avoided making it herself. And she avoided making it herself. And there was the whole punishing the people that had put an assassination on her. You know, there was a lot of things that were very calculated in that move, and it made me feel dirty. I didn't see it coming, but I mean, I I loved the deviousness of Nate's plot to make the Masons make Silpha complicit in their dark magic. (laughs) And I think as a character development, it surprised me. Like, Silpha often does this thing where she, like, will react to something emotionally, but then is, like, a rather reflective and analytical person. So after the panicked moment of this is the worst this is awful she sat back and thought like how can i use this what could i do here's a solution to move forward this isn't actually that bad i was surprised Silpha changed her mind about that 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 threw me for a loop well and i think part of it is very naive i mean obviously the masons have other secrets we've yet to discover and part of her idealism is thinking like Yes, I could offer them different magic and put an end to this practice of of blood magic. She's not thinking like, I could teach the Masons magic and then they could break your heart and bring back this practice with with that knowledge. Or there are worse things you don't know about the Masons or any of that kind of thing that might be in the back of her mind, but she hasn't developed a contingency plan for what it might be to be be trapped in that situation mm-hmm. no one asked me what my proudest moment is what's your proudest Aww. moment Nate? but i i want to follow it up with this one because this is my proudest moment is we were concerned that the masons were going to come and assassinate all of you in your sleep right like you had this secret knowledge mm-hmm. and it was really nerve-wracking and i was like no but what would a really smart person do like killing you is potentially risky it could fail it's expensive it's like all these, what would they actually do? Well, they need a wizard. Oh, right? yeah. And what was tough was it was like four more recording sessions before I got to pull that out <laughs> as like the plan. And so periodically I'd be like, oh, I want to tell you so bad. <laughs> but I can't. But yeah. I also enjoy keeping it from you. Yes. <laughs> it's kind of delightful, but also so painful. 
uh, rough time, but I was very happy with the outcome because I absolutely sprung it on her. Yeah. And you should have seen her face. (laughs) (laughs) The surprise landed very well. Oh my God. It was so good. I wish I'd gotten a picture. This is a good question for everybody. This is also going back to Lindsay. She thinks your NPCs are amazing, Nate. Oh, thank you. Yep. I appreciate that. For everybody, who's your favorite NPC and why? I had an idea that we could guess each other's favorite NPCs, but, you know. Ooh, yeah. that's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, Nate, you've kind of given some... Well, you keep changing yours, but... I have... He has many favorites. Favorite NPCs is like choosing a favorite child. I yeah. have favorite NPCs for this chunk of the story. Okay. So, but we can try guessing each other's. I'll guess one of Sable's favorite NPCs is Tree. Yep. And that's for sure. It's not my favorite, though. One of Jalen's favorite NPCs is Jessica. Yeah, she's one of my favorites, sure. She's not my favorite favorite, but yeah. Who is your favorite favorite? My Kylan. With Kylan's. a side dish of Jessica. <laughs> with a side dish of Jessica. <laughs> and with with a little bit of Isaac sauce on the top. Yeah, Isaac Isaac's getting more and more interesting, I have to yeah. say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, um, I, I didn't think much of him at first because I figured she had much more of a relationship with Jessica than with Isaac. But mm-hmm. yeah, he's uh, he's an interesting cat. Weasel, whatever. <laughs> he's an Weasel. interesting Weasel. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love your parents. Your parents your are mother, awesome. Your mother. Yeah, your parents is a single unit. Like, <laughs> Excuse me. Silpha's parents are awesome, Julie. Uh, you know, Julie made them up, and they're just amazing. They're so cool. There's also Scriggs. Well, Scriggs I, I, think, cool. I think I gave Nate the the idea behind what my parents were loosely like, as in, like, dad's a guard, good-natured. Beetleman. Beetleman, yeah. Lawful good. Right out of Kubo and the two strings. Exactly. Yeah. And then... Mom's a flighty social butterfly, but also rather shrewd, like the uh, Anara kind of archetype. They are, they are, however, not my favorite NPCs. Oh, Leslie. I like Leslie, Isaac. That's probably my favorite NPC. And coming in at a very close second is actually my, my new familiar. I suppose because it's my new familiar, but yeah. Scrix is pretty cool. I, I like how Scrix <laughs> alters between being extremely wise and a cat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I made Scrix a character sheet. I will read this for, for our listeners. He did make a character sheet for my familiar Scrix. Scrix's personality traits. I'm a cat. Ideals. Still a cat. <laughs> Bonds. Basically a cat. Flaws. Curiosity. <laughs> my favorite is the cat not squix the other oh, the cat. messenger oh, the messenger. oh interesting yeah so he is a puzzle to be unlocked also he's a bastard yeah, yeah he's a real bastard so lin linborn nino is like a a curveball that i created not with a great amount of thought and it grew very quickly into something that i'm really enjoying uh, so there's like a, a lot of story elements that come from that character, even though they're not really plot elements. And then Jessica Evans is just, I have a cat that is basically Jessica Evans in cat form. And so like anytime I, I want to know what Jessica Evans will do, I'm like, what would my cat Reggie do in Kill. this situation if she had thumbs and crossbows and it commanded the English language? And uh, that is Jessica Evans. She's all instinct and direction and i i she's just very fun yeah 
You will give me the fish. You will give it to me now, or I will cut your throat. <laughs> but I, I didn't answer the the surprise question or the the huh yeah, question, yeah. And, and Lynn was actually my huh because I thought that was going to be over before it started. Like a, a paladin and assassin sounds like a bad joke, right? Mm-hmm. So I actually didn't think that was even going to get off the ground, and. I am delighted with how complicated, how much it complicates things for her because she had sort of previously compartmentalized friends, family, and guild. And now she's got Lynn, friends, family, and guild. <laughs> so let me ask another question. What attracted you to an intrigue game? Does the style of play have pros and cons for you? I suppose we should start by asking Nate, why are you running an intrigue game? So I got the idea I wanted to do a podcast and I had in my mind all of these podcasts that I've listened to that are about Dungeons and Dragons. I love a lot of them. Some of them are adventure and some of them are funny and some of them are hijinks and some of them are very serious and a lot of them are very mechanical. And I sort of thought like, there's so many podcasts out there. What am I, what am I not hearing? And I, I determined that like what I was not hearing was an intrigue game like the kind of intrigue game I I run. And so I thought like, well, there's a niche, right? Like there's an audience probably for that out there. I hope there's more people like me. And, you know, that's what the internet is good for, I guess, right? There's more people like you out there. And cats. Oh, right. Pictures of cats and porn. The intrigue game for me was like, it was a niche, but I also personally found intrigue games to be a, a very different way of telling a story and what I like about them is it pulls more story elements from the players mm-hmm. than I think an adventure game does, where you're, you know, describing this elaborate scene and how you interact with that scene is more what you're doing. Whereas with an intrigue game, like what you did and how people react and how you react, all of those things become more important. And so it's more collective in storytelling. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of the collaborative storytelling. What has drawn me always to gaming has been the collaborative storytelling aspect of it. I do believe that when a when a game is character based rather than plot based, you get a very different experience and usually a deeper experience. So this is something that I think we're in a time that you know I think about people listening to these and watching Critical Role and all of this, and they see the players getting deep into their characters and actually being emotionally impacted by the stories that the characters have and it's very much like it's just such an, a great time to be involved in this and to be able to show people the depth to which the storytelling aspect of games can really be brought into play but yeah that's that's why an entry game interests me there's many different reasons that people enjoy playing D and for me i've discovered that the what i enjoy most is the role playing and the the collaborative storytelling and so an intrigue game is is perfect for that kind of like in-depth character exploration that a tabletop combat focused game for example might not get a chance to explore. I I enjoy playing D&D for the chance to put on another person's identity and think about like well how how would someone who cares about these certain things or thinks about the world in this certain way respond in this sort of situation and i should also note nate's first fenrir campaign that he ran was also my first experience playing D, and part of what i got out of that experience was like i i went in with not a pre-generated character but like 
a character that was was numbers on a page and I was learning how to play the game and then uh, over the course of this this long campaign I realized like oh you know what I'm more interested in is why my character has certain motivations why my character wants to do certain things and I began developing a backstory that I didn't come into the game with and then I think going forward I've I've turned into that person that <laughs> that creates like five pages of backstory for a character <laughs> and thinks about, you know, the characters that my character knows and their backstories and motivations. I, I just don't know when to stop. I just keep going with the story. See, so. but that's what's really awesome to me is like, I mean, in a, in a way, you're already writing fan fiction about your own story mm-hmm. before the story begins, <laughs> you know, but anything that, that uh, gets creativity going like that, that gets people excited uh, is, I mean, it's worthwhile. Yeah, I I think my favorite thing is the about the intrigue blanket, I guess, is that it, it really gives this opportunity for character and relationship development that, you know, high combat games don't necessarily have time for. And I I love that. I I want layers in this world that we're doing and and the intrigue is what lets us do that because we're not always out just killing shit we're killing relationships too and we're, <laughs> you know, we're, these you know we these teenagers which isn't necessarily you know implied in an intrigue game but we're playing at the, these politics now that is just really interesting i mean and and what you're saying about the motivations like when we do things we have developed solid reasons why it's not just oh because we're an adventure group yeah going out yeah. and killing monsters i mean it's just there there's a reason we're doing the stuff we're doing and it's and it's because of the story build that that lets us do that and you know i mean look at how long it took us for act to actually go outside at night yeah yeah so yeah, that drove nate crazy because we wouldn't go outside at night but it was literally ingrained into our characters not to do it well and i also the the intrigue nature of the game changes the structure of the story a lot where we don't have a band of adventurers traveling from place to place like we are stuck in this one place but i love how our characters aren't always together like we go to our own houses sable is dealing with the druid circle and and silpha is <laughs> got, got the best family life <laughs> um and then and you know and then jalen's dealing with the guild and that things things happen like significant events happen when we're apart from each other and then we come together and then you know those significant events happen and i like that aspect of it we're not always joined at the hip yeah and i think that is adding to those layers i i like that i i second a lot of, of what you were saying about developing relationships between characters too and the uh the separate character developments that happen to us you know what i do with my mornings now because I, I work afternoons and evenings in my mornings i drink my pot of tea and i think about jalen's fucked up childhood uh. <laughs> <laughs> so coming coming into a game i like to to think about like what experiences did a person have that mm-hmm. made them this way yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah. why is Silpha cold to every boy <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> And then I like to reflect afterwards, kind of like Nate has described in his style of running a game, thinking about what the NPCs do in response to things that the characters have done. I try to reflect upon, like, what does this new information or this new experience that my character just have mean going forward? How do I now reinterpret 
the world. I think that leads really nicely into a set of questions that we have. So I'll just, I'm going to combine a couple of questions. What do you think makes this particular game work? And what's your favorite thing about the dynamics at the table? For me, I think what makes the particular game work is that we all have a very different approach, not only in the way that we develop our characters, but in the way that we approach play and in the way that we kind of bring things to life here at the table. So I think that 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 has, like, for example, we were talking about the characters, character creation before. I didn't write a huge backstory for my character. The way that I make a character is kind of twofold. One, I like to sit back and see what other people are going to play and see what kind of holes in, in the kind of thing that we're playing need to be filled. And then the second thing that I like to do is give a little bit of backstory with a lot of stuff to fill in. So I have a very basic idea. And then I see when, when a character gets put into a situation, how they respond and then go, oh, that's what kind of character they are. It reminds me a lot of the, God, which Doctor Who was it that came in and he was like, oh, I must be an angry man. You know, like which one? That was David Tennant. That was David Tennant. Yeah, yeah because he, he started yeah. off trying to figure out what kind of guy he was. And then, like, all of a sudden, he's like, I must be an angry man. And that's kind of how I figure things out. Oh, I must be completely naive. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a very different way. And, and I think that that is, that's one of the things that makes this particular game work. And it's also one of the things that I really like about the dynamics of the table is because we do approach our characters very differently. And it just leads to a really balanced play. Well, and rich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah very yeah. rich play. Yeah. I was going to say that I, I think there's actually, like, a lot of, agreement in why yeah. we like this kind of game and why we're playing the game and therefore that's something that really makes our our table work despite having differences coming into how we might create a character right we don't have someone who's a min maxer and someone who's here for combat and someone who's here trying to role play and i think the four of us have played together before and so i think we're very what? we're very comfortable and I think we understand each other's dynamics well enough to play off of each other mm -hmm. and to feed each other a little bit. And so that's that's something that I think it makes it work. But it's also like Nate, Nate's willingness to keep things a little bit open-ended. And, and we feel like as players that we do actually contribute to the direction the story mm -hmm. goes, you mm -hmm. know, that we we actually bring things to the table that can be game changers and and that's exciting and unpredictable and and it really makes the collaborative part of it the most almost the most important yeah we part don't of it. you don't always get that in D&D &D. I mean D&D &D is you know famous for its modules where the story is already written out and you just go to the different places and play it out yeah you're in it yeah so i don't know I, the, the story feels actually more significant to me for that aspect there's another question here that sort of relates to these answers and so i'm just going to bring it up and kind of answer it here as we go which is uh christian on facebook asked what happened the first time you ran this campaign and what have you done differently and the first time i ran this campaign i had my friends but i, I did not pay any attention to are these people who all want the same thing out of the game i just grabbed a group of people i like and said all right let's play and I ended up with like eight people around the table and <laughs> the first the first thing they did was grab machetes and cut their way out of the thorns and like ignore everything else. Right. And it, it made for a completely different game than the one I had intended. And with this game, the first thing I did was I chose my players. And so like I played with you all before and I knew that I wanted something semi-serious, something very character driven, something that was very thoughtful. And so I chose the people who wanted that wanted that game mm -hmm. 
Oh, shucks. Yeah, well, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> but thank you, actually, is what I should say. But yeah, it, it was a it was a very purposeful choice, right? And then the second thing I did was I changed the mechanics on the thorns. So don't try to cut your way out. It won't work. It won't work. All right. Yeah. <laughs> One of the nice things about a podcast is I can't have eight players around a table and run a podcast. With audio, I think like if I had eight ladies in here, like... Wow. Like, you'd have to get really good at picking out the voices. It's interesting you're assuming they'd all be ladies. My gaming groups are overwhelmingly women. Okay. Which is a whole different thing. If you want us to talk about women in gaming, we'll we'll just have to do a whole completely other talk session. We'll do a different podcast on that. But three voices is, I think, the right amount to listen to. Mm -hmm. And so it, it let me basically say, I'm not being exclusive by not inviting people, but I am building a specific thing Mm -hmm. and these are the three people i'm going to build it with well that starts really nicely into another one of the questions that we have which takes us out of the game but really into the podcast side of things how does doing the game as a podcast change your experience well no maps and minis that's that's sort of the most obvious yeah (laughs) thing that we we are describing everything well and i i have actually enjoyed the just the archiving bit of it being able to listen to things that we did before and remember them with clarity like oh made this decision then and and it carries forward i think into like more consistent play although if we weren't recording i don't think i'd necessarily notice it at the table Mm -hmm. i also want to say the the other thing i kind of enjoy about unfolding a story for listeners is that we do some aspects of, of role play at the table that we wouldn't necessarily if we were just playing the game and, and not recording for an audience. NPCs can have personal dialogue with the character. For example, the, the things that happen to us separately are mm-hmm. things that wouldn't necessarily always happen at another game table that wasn't being recorded. I guess the best example, too, is I, I have liked that recording at a podcast for listeners. Nate, as the DM, has been able to provide information to listeners that we don't have in character the whole story arc with the ghost being a a perfect example of that we never heard any of those narrations as to what was going on with the ghost until we listened to the episode themselves Mm -hmm. and so i as a player i guess i was also kind of thrilled when i had the in-character moment of of realizing a sofa well, perhaps the ghost herself, and then like listening to the episode and and realizing that is in fact what happened, mm-hmm. whereas like the character still doesn't know definitively that is what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was an interesting kind of like intellectual quandary I had too, because I, as a dungeon master, I believe that if you're going to challenge your players' minds, they have to be able to screw up, right, and mm-hmm. and not learn things and not get information, right. and. There's a, a, I guess, a price to that, mm-hmm. and the players kind of pay it. You, you don't get to know things. You missed, you missed the factoid, or you didn't follow up, and it's it's gone now, or other things happened well in your absence. And the thing with a, a podcast medium, right, is we we have listeners, right, and they didn't, they didn't make those decisions that resulted in that. And so for them, it'd be just kind of confusing and and a little yeah. jarring to not not realize that this plot with the ghost was still going actions were still being taken behind the scenes and the the players didn't get to see that because you didn't focus in on it 
but I still needed to make it visible to the the audience, right? Mm -hmm. What's good about that is the characters still know what the characters know, but the players still got the story too in the end. And so I think it's like the best of both worlds. Uh, The intrigue is still there. The things you didn't see, you still didn't see. But the story is still told in a way that people can get it. Yeah. You said a little bit ago that you were surprised when we were writing the summary how much has happened in this game with just 20 hours of episode, which is about, what, 30, 35 hours of gameplay, right? Mm -hmm. And I think because we, we only record two hours at a time. And then we chain Nate down and make him do another two yeah, hours. Yeah, so sometimes we'll, you know, if we're, if we're feeling Randy, we'll do two two recording sessions in one sitting. But, you know, you usually your gameplay for D&D can go four, five, six hours or even longer. And I think we play more efficiently because we're recording. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, we record, we have these two hours and we, when we first started, we would record for two hours and that would probably get cut down to one hour. Now we're recording for two hours. We might cut out 20 minutes of dithering, maybe 30. Mm, We cut out more than that. More than that. But we do consciously think about editing decisions. Yeah, we do think about that. But it's also, we just put out episode 19, which was recording sessions 17 and 18 come by. Yeah, something like like that. Yeah, so we're, we're actually, the mode of gameplay is a lot more, I guess, driven we're focused yeah Yeah, we're focused focused. we're a lot better at focusing than we were when we started and and i think it's the recording aspect that that really hones that just like listeners we want to see stuff happen yeah there's not as much dithering i think one of the things despite the fact that you'll hear us talking over each other a lot there is a lot of respect for just waiting and letting somebody else do their interaction or whatever that is going to be there's a lot of times that get cut out, like there was one session, the session when Sable was almost making her first deals, it took me forever to make those decisions. There were long, long, long pauses where I was thinking and apologies for keeping us. And luckily, y'all were willing to respect that and just let me get through that. Whereas I think without the podcast aspect of things, people might be tempted to just step in. Everybody has that story of this is taking too long, so one of the characters is just going to kick the door down. Yeah, the Leroy Jenkins moment. Yeah, we don't do that. That's not a thing, and I appreciate that. Two other things that are kind of coming to mind as I talk about this technically, like because we only record for two hours, you gals have a lot of time to think about how would my character respond, and I have a lot of time to think about like how would this NPC respond. Mm-hmm. And so I think because we record for two hours and then we take like a to break we come back thirsty but focused like can that be our new subtitle thirsty but focused (laughs) that implies we're like a drinking podcast (laughs) (laughs) Lindsay also asked us what the production looked like and how the episodes are edited i think that's a fun thing to talk about nate and i both work in a field where audio production is a thing at a amateur plus scale i would say Give us credit for Amateur Plus. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, we don't use big sound engineering stuff, and we're not using a really fancy audio editing tool or anything along those lines, but there is a lot of work that goes into it. The beginning of it, I mean, right now you're listening to us at my kitchen table, so, and we're all sitting around a bunch of microphones looking at each other in weird ways and trying to hold our mouths close to the microphone. Yeah, and what we usually do is we split, we split the labor up a little bit, so... What goes into an episode, right, is an intro, 
at least an hour of our recording time, which probably is created from two hours of recording time. And so someone has to go through that and run some audio cleanup and cut out all the empty space. And then they pass it back to me and I go through and I'm like, well, this line of inquiry didn't necessarily go anywhere. This out of character conversation doesn't need to happen. You build it into, you shape it into a story. It's all, it's all from trimming. Like, I think we do a pretty good job of creating a story, but the trimming just keeps it like fast paced. Mm Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we have a mid-roll where we do animal facts and like Julie's a, a kind of biology nerd. So like she'll come in and have excitement for the research part of this. And, and then we'll do the outro and then that makes a podcast, right? But then you got to like market it and do the technical stuff to get it out on the web. And so Sandra has marketing experience. And I'd also like to say that I find it highly amusing that you you just describe someone with a biology degree as kind of a biology nerd yeah (laughs) yeah you're kind of a biology nerd yeah kind of so i have to say i love our animal facts i do too julie those are freaking awesome they're amazing they always make me laugh see i never get to hear them until the actual thing is done so i have to say nate up until the past couple episodes has has done most of the the writing of the mid-roll yeah the animal facts got a lot smarter after julie took them on (laughs) because for me like i'm honestly i'm doing like animal fun facts for kids what are the top five animal fun facts? Oh my god! Rachel can see his face. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just putting these like tidbits together, but Julie actually goes and finds like the really interesting. There are fun stuff. I, I try to find the weird ones. <laughs> As a caveat, I have to say the focus of my degree was botany, hence my my love for like insects and pollinators. And, oh, that makes sense. That, yeah, that yeah, kind yeah, yeah. of thing. So, like, two last questions yep. here. One from Adar, are there any specific literary or visual media inspirations that we have? There are some specific ones. So uh, long ago in a galaxy far away, I played Changeling the Lost quite a bit from White Wolf. I did it both in a a kind of a LARP format and, and in a tabletop format. And I found the stories to be really beautiful, very sad kind of stories, but very beautiful stories. And so I draw on a lot of inspiration from that. And then I have a, a couple of books on old world fairy lore, like like real old world fairy lore, mm-hmm. like an anthology of fairies and an anthology of gnomes. The, the fairies are bastards, sort. Yeah, yeah, yeah those yeah. stories. Like, yeah. like where they're really <laughs> alien and somewhat malicious, but occasionally benevolent, but not in a way you want to like rely on. The White Wolf storytelling system was a big a big thing for me too. It was a kind of a revelation to me to have a fully almost entirely character-based system put out. I think that that changed over time, but I think the idea when it when it first came out was was kind of revolutionary in the gaming space, in the tabletop gaming space. When it comes to the actual interactions and the relationship building dynamic, I was a theater kid. You know, I did, I did theater all through college, and so when it comes to getting into a character, you know, they, I do miss that part of my life a lot and so i think i pull a lot of that emotive power i draw on a lot of that from from that experience and you know and really wiggling into somebody else's skin you know and not not making your character you i like that word choice wiggling into somebody else's well you skin. are i mean you do you have you to, don't slip into it you don't slip into it you you tug and pull and 
tarot sometimes, you know? And So the last question here is, what is the funniest moment that wound up on the cutting room floor? So oh my I, God. God, is it the laughing. There's so much laughing. So there's, there's a couple reasons that things that are funny get cut. One is we're laughing like hyenas over the top of each other, <laughs> and it's just awful audio quality. Like, uh, and I just like I can't bear putting it out in the world. You don't want them to listen to twenty-seven seconds of us just laughing, <laughs> La- laughing at, at zero decibels, <laughs> laughing, just blowing out the audio completely. Uh, yeah. So that I mean that happens, and those those moments tend to get trimmed. And then one of the choices that really surprised me about this campaign was when you guys said you won't pick teenagers. It creates a certain like, uh, like I you know I put the explicit tag on this podcast because I I say a lot of curse words. But when you guys decided you want to be teenagers, like I kind of had to dial it back to PG thirteen sometimes because like we'll make a joke and it's hilarious, but it does not belong in a conversation about like a 16 year old's love life or family life I'm like get that out of there like just take it out of there the the thing that i want to draw attention to is the really long hilarious bits that we do where we just like build and build and build and they almost always start from the same place which is silfa lunari's childhood <laughs> <laughs> um she she was a strange child. <laughs> she was larval. <laughs> See, we we haven't even we haven't even ex- explored that bit, and I've thought about it. I've thought about how how she was bullied and called larva lunari, and, <laughs> oh, oh, no. and bug eyes, and you know, part of the reason like she fell in love with Cygnus Swanson is like he got called like duck butt face. <laughs> <laughs> And so they were they were like the the odd kids out who who sat together and he would craft these amazing stories about how eventually their looks wouldn't matter. They'd show all these people uh, and you'd eat your weight in wool while listening. <laughs> That's her nervous coping mechanism. <laughs> the drapes just keep getting destroyed. Every now and then we come over and she's just chewing on a sock. See, this is what happens. This is what happens. Yeah. Is we go off while she's trying to tell something serious. And so, yes, one one of my childhood stories that I, I had come up with and, and told around the table at one point to amuse people was like, oh, yeah, like my mom just t- turned her back on me for like two minutes and they found me 15 minutes later in this store closet having eaten my way through a bolt of wool. <laughs> Kids in Fenrir, kids do weird stuff, right, man? <laughs> well, I think because we we did talk about early on, like, and this go- this goes back to the cultural reality of the Thorns, like yeah. the, the kind of culture that it's creating, and it's like everybody has these animal traits. So, like, when it came to things like Jalen gets naked, Billy has a dog trait and he pees on people. You know? <laughs> We've already talked about the fact that it's just going to be your characters, all your characters. All my get, characters. I don't do this they on get purpose. Naked, I yeah. really don't do this on purpose. All nudists at heart. <laughs> what we should really be calculating is how many generations it will take for ever the, the standard greeting in Fenrir <laughs> to be butt sniffing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's going to be the standard greeting very soon. So common common things are like, you know, Silpha's mom telling stories about Silpha's childhood and like we imagine she's got Byron Mason and like the picture book open and obviously they don't have photos or whatever, but you know, like there's all these line drawings of like giant corpulent Silpha. <laughs> 
eating through like all of the like well, half not, of a sofa. She's not corpulent. She's larval. She's got like all these rolls, but very very small arms and legs. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say I have. We haven't shared it, but I have. I have actually drawn this. <laughs> See, the stuff that's funniest for me doesn't even get make it into the podcast. It's all the stuff that goes through text afterward. Oh, the, pu- the, pun, the, the pun wars. <laughs> the pun wars between Mandy and Julie are just like, Nate and I just sit back and let them do it because there's we're not going to hold a candle to it. Well, it's like we we made it through an entire episode about horses and there wasn't mm-hmm. a single horse pun. And then you guys went off for like four hours in text messages. Of just horse pun, horse pun, horse pun, horse pun. Horse pun. There, was just, there was just so much there. There was one that was that one that was going on along, and then Nate comes back. He's like, "I leave you alone for one hour." <laughs> <laughs> he's got something like sixty texts. <laughs> I want to say they're they're not a war. It's a it's a collective. It's experience. a pun love. It's a pun experience. Yeah, we're we're I just think it's a war in a good way. Like, yeah, 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 it's yeah. Like a, it's... We're we're building something. That's we, right. We build something. It's a pun experience. It's a pun experience. Yeah, See, so you fun. can't harsh our gigs on this anymore because you do it too. <laughs> I, not on purpose. I usually pun by accident. I have a whole portion of my brain that's allocated to nothing but puns. Oh, we, we, we know, Julie. Yeah. Uh, yes. Those right. are the funny things. that like. There's a lot of laughter on this table. Like The more serious and dark it gets, the more wild the joke is on the other end that we just cut so (laughs) Uh, well as a matter of fact like even our even our our name for the podcast and our logo for the podcast are based off of jokes which we can just leave in secrecy we should probably let the the listening audience in on the fact that they are they're in jokes from another campaign where something very similar happens and it's a much darker campaign with, with so even far. more hilarity sometimes. Oh my god. <laughs> chicken pants? Chicken pants. Does anybody know why, why, why I have chicken, I have pants, chicken written? pants written now? <laughs> Wait, which, which we almost named this podcast. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so the problem with like 70,000 D&D podcasts out in the world is every pun was taken. Every single D&D pun was taken. And I tried. Yeah, I bet you did. Yeah, now Julie put in a lot of effort and we were just Googling like, nope, nope, nope. So in the end, we pulled just out had our, to give it up. We pulled out our quote book of most funny quotes from previous D and D games, and we chose carrots and suffering. And I think it was a good choice. I do too, because it, it was more personal to us. I mean, we we had a stake in that name that was not just being clever, and it led to wild listener speculation. Yeah, tell you what, when we get to a hundred likes on iTunes. We should tell people what Carrots and Suffering comes from. All right, not until at least 100 people rate and review us, so get out there, people. I just feel like that's a big reward to give. Yeah, it's a big so, one. Yeah. All right, <laughs> so gonna tell everybody. Back. We're going to hold that back. No one will ever know what, the, what Carrots, what and, carrots suffering and Suffering really is. means. Um, actually, I've seen a lot of people speculate online, like, I've, there's plenty of suffering, but I don't know where the carrots are, so I will add carrots at some point, uh, just so that you can continue to speculate. So, hey, Nate. <laughs> How do we end a podcast like this? How do we end a podcast like this? I will edit this and we will sound found and <laughs> and thoughtful. No one will have ever said, um, ah, like, oh, no, that'll be there. Everyone will have been like ready with their most eloquent answer at the moment the question dropped. And 
this is why we'll never do a live show. <laughs> ever. <laughs> ever. Ever. The end? The end. So thank you, everyone, for for listening. I recommend, if you would like to skip episodes 1 through 20 in order to get caught up, uh, do go back, listen to them at some point. They're great. Episodes 1 through 5, you know, the audio's a little, but we, you know, we learned. We did. Episode 0 is a lovely way to get to know the characters and a little bit about the world. And then this episode will get you caught up. And if you like listening to us, tell your friends about us. We do not have a marketing budget. So come out to Facebook, find us. Come out to Twitter, find us. Come out to Tumblr, find us. Share it with your friends. Please give us some stars and some ratings where you listen to your podcasts. And we'll love to hear from you. Bye. 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 Robbie, say bye. Done. Thanks to Julie at Elaborate Flight of Fancy for our logo and Todd Ferguson at My Pet Machine on Facebook for our music. <laughs>